Hey, welcome to Am I Famous Yet? My name is Ivan Bodley. Some people call me the Funk Boy. This is chapter 31 entitled, Oh, the Indignity, Enter Through the Kitchen. Uh, there's a sign behind a catering hall in New Jersey that reads as follows, elevator entrance for florists, musicians, vendors, and handicap accessible. As musicians, at first glance, the sign appears to be relegating us to possibly being emotionally handicapped and unfit to use the front door of the place. Is there some implied hierarchy in the ordering of the people mentioned? I wonder. Are they insulting florists or other vendors by lumping them in with lowly musicians? Yet further examination of the topography of this particular venue reveals the actual slight. Excuse me, this place is built on the side of a hill. The front door is up two steps from the entrance driveway. The back entrance is around the building and down the hill, one floor below the main level, hence the reason one requires an elevator to transport one's bass amplifier back upstairs. Rather than a disservice to the vendors, vendors the true disservice here is done to the alternately abled. Instead of building a tiny ramp that would allow a wheelchair to navigate the mere two steps into the main entrance, the owners felt it would be easier or cheaper to send them down the hill and around the back. Though they are invited guests, the handicapped patrons get to enjoy the garbage chute on their way into the ritzy party. This place has class. There is a common practice at catering halls, hotels, and other upmarket establishments to have a service entrance for deliveries that is separate, yet unequal, from the polished brass and marble entryways the paying guests use. That's understandable. No one likes to be checking into a five-star hotel as the staff is dragging out the ripe and dripping remains of last night's sushi station from the Vander Snoot wedding. While the front entrances of these establishments are quite discerning, the service entrances are notoriously not so. If most people entered restaurants via the service entrance, past the greasy dumpsters, into the kitchens, they would be far less likely to want to eat there. There's something about walking past the full bouquet of fermented garbage, a uh, fermented garbage pile into the steamy ambiance of a working industrial kitchen that sets quite an emotional tone for the evening, especially with regard to one's appetite. Musicians often need to carry amps and gear into an establishment of this type and are barred from using the front door or what I like to call the white folks entrance. It's very common to see the racial demographics of pricey functions such as these laid out in bold terms. Often the only people of color in these joints are the waitstaff and the band. If they're super rich places, this might not even extend to the waitstaff, just the band. This discrimination is often accompanied by a goofy dress code. After five years of having to wear a shirt and tie every day to preparatory school, nothing make my, makes my eyes roll faster than a jackets required for gentlemen sign in one of these dumps. Some of them go so far as to require that you have to be in your full monkey suit to load in your gear. Do you know how uncomfortable and ridiculous, ridiculous it is to hump amplifiers while wearing a wool suit? There's no shame in manual labor. There's also nothing wrong with wearing a formal tuxedo, but combine the two and it's just not a good look for anybody. On the very day that I wrote this chapter, I received an email saying, please don't forget to wear all nice casual tear for attire for soundcheck if you are not wearing your performance suit. Tortured syntax aside, this is referring to the load in at the Rainbow Room, a classy dive in Manhattan for a wedding gig on the following night. What exactly is 
nice casual. And who cares what I'm wearing while sweating and lifting amps? It's hard to tell if this neurosis is springing from the band leader, the booking agent, the couple, or the venue itself. Whoever made up the rule is guaranteed that I'm in for a fun evening well before I even, even arrive. There are further computations that tend to go into just how snooty a particular establishment is likely to be. More specifically, these factors influence how nasty the employees are likely to be to the musicians. Legitimately upscale hotels, restaurants, and country clubs are discriminatory in their clientele, to be sure. One cannot be exclusive unless one excludes someone. Rules and regulations at this stratum of the hospitality injury, in, injury, industry are extensive and strictly enforced, though usually with some level of decorum. When attempting to roll a hand truck with a guitar amp through, in through the lobby, you will be instructed nicely but firmly that you need to use the service entrance. Uh, interesting things happen when one travels a few notches down the food chain to catering halls, which are aptly called wedding factories. As the overall socioeconomic level of the establishment starts to decline, even while the veneer of opulence and classiness persists, the level of pretense increases mightily. With the, with the increase in pretense comes an almost linear decrease in civility to musicians and other vendors. It gets pretty nasty fairly quickly. There's a clear hierarchy and pecking order among the staff of such catering halls from the, from the maitre d' on down to the dishwashers and porters. Ranking below the dishwashers are, you guessed it, the day laborer musicians. Interestingly enough, at a more working class salt of the earth type restaurant or rented VFW, which is a veteran of foreign, wall, foreign wars hall, the staff and clientele are almost always lovely to the musicians. The trouble only really occurs in the middle class and higher class joints, which all aspire to be better than they really are. There's a mini class war going on within the ranks of these places that is constant, pervasive, and amazingly similar across so many venues. As working musicians, we are arguably skilled at our trade and usually hired for a good deal of money for the evening as special entertainers for the patrons. I'm talking hundreds of dollars, not thousands, just to keep this in perspective. This affords us some level of respect from guests at the wedding who used to play guitar in high school, but that's about as far as it goes. Even though we may be getting paid more than a maitre d' for the evening, or perhaps because of this very fact, we are often treated with disdain and intolerance. A quick word about this. I understand completely why someone would treat musicians with contempt. I know musicians. I work with them every day. Every cliche you've ever heard about a musician is based on a kernel of truth. I assume the reason that musicians aren't allowed to drink in catering halls has a lot to do with past bad behavior. I've seen it, and I don't care for that behavior myself. I've seen cocktail hour musicians position themselves between the kitchen door and the patrons so that they can be the first to grab the hors d'oeuvres as the food is on its way out to the party guests. This is bad form and gives us a bad reputation. I'm especially offended by this behavior because as a bass player, it takes two hands to properly play my instrument. As such, I am unable to similarly pilfer snacks while I'm playing, unlike a pianist or a horn player between solos. It's a little bit of sour grapes on my part. Even so, I dislike the attitude that so many musicians, musicians seem to have. If it's free, it's for me. I've had to remind some of my fellow musicians, okay, usually I mean singers, that complaining about the food at a wedding really isn't cool 
because believe it or not, that food isn't for us. We're not paying for it. It's not our function. These places charge a lot of money because they know that a wedding is one of the few times it's possible to extract top dollar from clients. After all, how many times are you going to get married in life? Don't answer that. The bands charge a lot of money too. That's part of life in the wedding business. The catering halls also charge their clients a lot of money to feed the vendors, as in musicians, photographers, videographers, etc. The most expensive way to feed the band is to buy them a table in the ballroom to sit with the other guests. Though this seems like the nicest way to treat musicians, I actually dislike this option. When I do have a break from the bandstand, the last thing I want to do is stand around in my uncomfortable suit at a party where I don't know anyone and pretend to engage in the merriment. Even if they are feeding us the prime rib, I'm a vegetarian. Steak doesn't entice me, nor does mixing with the stuffed shirts. There's an old joke that Buster Poindexter, Buster Poindexter used to tell on stage. He was approached by a high society dame who inquired as to the cost of his band for a party that she was throwing. Eh, about 5,000 bucks ought to do it, he replied. The matron added in a snooty upper-class accent, I must warn you that there will be absolutely no fraternizing allowed with my guests. Buster replied, okay, make it 3,000. The second tier of cost to the clients to feed the band is the same meal as the party guests, but to have them eat it in the kitchen, in a staff dining room, or even just standing outdoors many times, anywhere as long as it's out of sight of the guests. The lowest cost to the client is called a vendor meal. This is where it can get interesting. This range of options can be as nice as a pan of leftover whatever from the main party, which can be delicious though just presented in a serve yourself fashion, or it can be something a little less nice like the catering hall on Long Island that typically just slops leftovers onto a serving platter for the band. There's also a prevalent phenomenon known as bandwitches. This feels like a begrudging acknowledgement that we are indeed human and in need of sustenance, but clearly all expense possible has been spared to provide us with the bare minimum of calories necessary for us to finish the job and exit the premises immediately afterward. This option can even be scaled down to boxed or bagged lunches with an apple and an individual serving of packet of potato chips if you're lucky. Don't get me wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with eating a sandwich and potato chips. The sense that something isn't quite right comes from the, trying to balance the bagged lunch on the fender of a car parked out by a juiced, juicy dumpster, trying not to slip in the grease while wearing dress shoes and a tuxedo as other people not five feet away are feasting on lobster and roast beast. This is an institutionalized inhumanity and disparity featured at these moments that can feel like anything from a cultural educational moment to an absolute fuck you from a mater d' who has growled at you and tossed a sandwich at you like a zookeeper tossing raw chickens to the crocodiles. It's often the intent and execution of such feelings of the animals that dictate the tone of the evening's proceedings. Additionally, there's one lower cost option I failed to mention, not feeding the band at all. This has happened more times than it ever should have. We fight it constantly and complain loudly about it when it happens. It's more than just rude to expect an employee to be on a job site for six hours with no available nourishment or breaks, yet it certainly happens. We've been fed dry ham on white bread at famous five-star hotels. We've seen more sweaty lunch meat deli platters than you can imagine. And we have occasionally been offered all we could eat of the very best that the place has to offer. It runs the gamut, though it is definitely skewed towards the lower end of the spectrum, believe me. I mentioned being a vegetarian. 
This is a voluntary dietary choice I have made and kept for the past 30 years. I'm not militant or proselytizing about it. You can eat whatever you want to eat. Just allow me to eat or not eat whatever I want to eat. This adds a layer of complications to getting fed at a catering hall. Russian weddings, uh, the Russians never seem to have heard of vegetarians. I've been told in some Russian catering halls that there's absolutely nothing available for me to eat. I find this shocking in the middle of New York City in the 21st century, yet this dietary deafness exists. It's a constant conversation that I'm required to have with Made everywhere. Excuse me, but when you feed the band, if there's a vegetarian option available, I would be most grateful. This polite and non-demanding request is often met with civility and accommodation, but often it is not. It can be met with irritation, derision, and flat-out refusal. Many catering managers conflate the concept with being a vegetarian with also meaning being on a diet. Here's a salad. Thank you. I would like to live beyond the next five minutes that this salad will fill me up for, so what else do you have? Once at an old school, now defunct Poconos vacation resort, I was giving a heaping plate of steamed carrots, just carrots, enjoy. I realize that my dietary choices are my own. I'm not trying to inflict my view of the world, my view on the world. I'm just trying to get through the gig without passing out from low blood sugar. To wit, I have been carrying protein bars in my bag as part of my standard gigging equipment for years. Because of the above mentioned meal pricing structure, these catering halls will not give you the food that they're otherwise throwing out. They waste mountains of food every day. As musicians, we are not allowed to stand with a plate over the dumpster when they're discarding the food because it would violate their ability to charge the clients for our board. Furthermore, because I'm required to perform these machinations every time the band gets fed, and because I get a different plate of food from everyone else in the band, I'm required to have some version of the same conversation I've had to endure for the past 30 years. This is a cultural hysteria, or there is a cultural hysteria around vegetarianism that I just do not understand. The reason that I know that it's cultural and that it's, that it's hysteria is that I get uh, the, exa the exact same questions in almost the exact same order every single time. Quote, how long have you been a vegetarian? Why did you become a vegetarian? Is it for health or humanitarian reasons? How do you get your protein? Do you wear leather? End quote. I'm not suggesting, dear reader, that any of these questions circulating in the back of your mind, uh, I'm just saying that everyone else does. I've heard them all before, so many times in exactly that order that I'm no longer willing to have the same identical conversation anymore. I just can't with this. If you're really interested, there's a fine resource called Google that can tell you all you need to know about vegetarianism, but most people aren't really interested. They're just asking parroted questions that they don't even realize aren't even theirs and reinforcing stereotypes they don't even know they have. This kind of cultural hysteria isn't limited to vegetarianism. There have been extensive articles written on these subjects. We are force-fed as kids long litany of lies that we grow up accepting as facts that just aren't true. This misinformation gets imprinted on us very early in the two plus two equal four days. We have them on file in our brains as irrefutable facts. Unfortunately, even though they're a pack of lies, they're very difficult to revise in our crania, and when challenged, are often met with a very virulent, nah uh For instance, did you know that George Washington wasn't the first president of the United States? He was actually the 13th. Did you know that Napoleon wasn't short? 
He was five foot six inches tall, which was above average for his day. Did you know that there weren't three wise men that traveled on camels from afar to visit the baby Jesus? The Bible never says exactly how many wise men there were, nor how they made their journey. Did you know that lemmings don't blindly follow each other jumping off of cliffs? That myth was created for a Disney movie. I could go on. Most of what we've been taught is wrong. Did you know that there's protein in broccoli? There are 4.2 grams per serving to be precise. It has more protein per calorie than steak, but you'd have to eat a whole lot more broccoli to get the same number of calories as you do from steak. And is this necessarily a good thing? A cousin of mine once sneered at me when I told her this. Her response was, there's no protein in broccoli. I used to be a health teacher. Congratulations. You've been poisoning the minds of the youth of America for decades. I didn't have the strength to fight it to explain that the old official four groups were four food groups were t the, the, that we were taught were the result of extensive government lobbying by the beef and dairy industries. It's all a lie, a deeply ingrained cultural hysteria based on a lie. And I really don't care. I'm not here to get on a soapbox about it. All I want to do is get something to eat before the next set. I have a few standard charming jokes I've come up with over the years to disarm and deflect the lies when people ask, how long have you been a vegetarian? Well, I'm just giving it a try to see how I like it. Way to beat. If they don't automatically ask, I, so I prompt them to inquire. So how long has it been? 30 years. And the next inevitable question, so is it for health or humanitarian reasons? To which I reply, oh, I'll kill them. I just want to eat them. The next thing that the dudes in the band want to do is start being funny. Hey man, why don't you eat a steak? Ha ha ha. It's never funny. Furthermore, it's mean-spirited and illustrates that most people find the concept of vegetarian threatening to them for some reason, like we're all claiming some higher moral ground because we're not carnivorous. As I've said before, you, you can eat what you want to eat, just, let, just leave me in peace. After decades of this unwelcome scrutiny, even from fellow musicians, making me feel like an outsider among outsiders, when I finally do manage to get my special plate of non-meat, whatever it is, I take it and walk away from the band and everyone else to be able to eat in peace. Thus, you think that it's only a personal quirk that I've developed about being made to feel that I'm less of a person in these wedding factory environments. I'll just mention a brief anecdote about my drummer pal, the late Crusher Green. Crusher was an African-American gentleman with a lot of pride, which he well deserved. He was Wilson Pickett's drummer and music director for almost 37 years. It was the wicked Pickett himself who dubbed young Tyrone Green Crusher. We didn't ever call him Tyrone. He was a bad mother, shut your mouth. I'm just talking about Crusher. He was one of the baddest drummers you ever heard. We were standing outside of some function hall somewhere, either on a break or right after a Shirelles concert. We were in our tuxedos. Some band guys were smoking. Some guys were getting a breath of fresh air. Some guys were just hanging out. Here comes white dude out of the venue and handed Crusher his valet ticket for his car. Crusher held the ticket up, promptly made confetti out of it, and dropped it at the guy's shoes and walked off. That's the cultural air of those establishments, and Crusher wasn't having it. I played once with disco diva Gloria Gaynor at Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach, Florida. That's right, Donald Trump's dump. This was four or five years before he ever ran for whatever political office he's had. To be fair, the event we played was a fundraiser that had nothing to do with him. He wasn't there. We didn't meet him. He just owned the dump. 
I think the management provided a green room for Gigi, as we called her, and to the girls to change before the show. But the men folk in the band, there was nothing. We got to stand in the alleyway outdoors before the show, drinking eight-ounce bottles of Trump water, without a calorie to eat, a chair to sit down in, or even a pleasant hello. But the kicker was this. Before we even arrived at the venue, we were informed that upon completion of our performance, we had exactly 15 minutes to exit the premises. You're done. Thank you very much. Get out. This applied to Ms. Gaynor as well as to the rest of us working stiffs in the band. We all got in the passenger van together directly after the show and beat a hasty retreat past all of the Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and Rolls Royces. Usually, Ms. Gaynor, Ms. Gaynor tended to travel in her own SUV to and from these shows, but not at Mar-a-Lago. Another time I was playing a star-studded celebrity benefit show with, high-powered, uh, with a high-powered cast of famous millionaire session musicians in the house band. These are all heavy cats you probably know from seeing their credits on hundreds of recordings, or at least intimately know their work from hearing them off number one hit records. This show was held in a large circus tent set up on the grounds of a resort hotel, which is a common venue for this type of event. This particular event was for super high roller billionaires and their ilk. When it came time to feed the band, the lowly millionaires, and me, uh, we were ushered out to a folding table with chairs in the open air behind the tent, out of sight of the bigwigs. They did condescend to feed us what the main party was eating. Uh, they even went so far as to give us the same plates and silverware that the guests were enjoying. They just, this just, they just didn't extend floors, walls, ceilings, or climate control to us. I shall never forget dining al fresco under the stars with these famous musicians. I'm only glad it wasn't raining. The point here is that no matter who you are or think that you are, there's someone who thinks they're better than you are, richer than you, and more entitled with you, than you. And they're right, at least as far as country club rules dictate. Your job as the working class musician is to play your songs at the appointed hour and at the appointed volume. You're not allowed to make eye contact with the guests, nor necessarily expect to be fed or hydrated. And you're to thank your gracious employers for the privilege at every turn. Often, this is the game as we all know. We accept it and show up for work knowing our place for the evening. But sometimes you get that extra stick in the eye to remind you just how worthless you really are. Countless times I've, been, I've poked my head into the front door of a kitchen of a catering hall and been yelled at unprovoked. You can't go there. You're not supposed to be there. Why are you here? Can I help you? Somehow this never comes off as sounding as helpful as it probably should. I remember pulling up beside a dumpster at a country club in a gated community somewhere in Pennsylvania. The gates are always to keep the riffraff out, you know, like musicians. It's always another dance for me to try to figure out where the employee parking lot is. You can't park your hoopty next to the Mercedes-I-E. And where the band load-in door is when arriving at a new venue. Pulling up next to the dumpster is always a good bet. It's usually right outside the kitchen door where they're going to allow you to load in. This time was remarkable because I got yelled at before I even got out of the car. The head chef in his greasy kitchen whites was leaning against an old Jeep Cherokee dragging on a butt. He hollered, you can't park there. What are you doing? The guy who's not from around these parts with an out-of-state plates, long hair, and wearing a tuxedo says the following painfully obvious things. I'm in the band. I'm just going to load my equipment through here. Then I will move my car right away to whatever parking lot is cool. Oh, okay, he says before stubbing out his butt and returning to the salmonella factory that is his kitchen. What? And quit show business. 
So far, the only time that this entry by the kitchen policy didn't feel like a complete fuck you was at a really old school catering hall somewhere out in New Jersey. There are thousands of them, folks. I honestly don't remember most of them until I'm rolling up the driveway for maybe the dozenth time and start saying to myself, ah, oh, yeah, this place looks familiar. This particular one, particular one I remember for a couple of reasons. One, it's an odd, it's an old building, maybe 100 years old, which is really old from New Jersey. The problem is that it's a faux Tudor-style mansion aping architecture from the 1500s. So it's a 100-year-old building masquerading as a 500-year-old building and not quite getting it right. It looks more like a set piece from a, from a medieval-themed restaurant. Roast turkey legs for everyone. The other reason I remember it is the sign that marks the entrance for deliveries. Instead of saying vendors or deliveries or emotionally challenged, it says tradesman's entrance. What a refreshing sight that is. Instead of relegating us journeyman troubadours to the trash heap of humanity, the wording on that sign allows for the slight possibility that we might actually be craftspeople or artisans. This isn't even limited to musicians. It applies to all manner and nature of vendors who are visiting the site for the evening. It feels respectful on some level, even if they don't really mean it. Of course, the last time I played that venue, the valet belligerently yelled at me and refused to allow me to even drive up to the tradesman's entrance to unload my car because it might be in view of the wedding ceremony. I understand his position, yet I still had a job that this wedding party emphatically wanted me to do. Though I was being respectful, yet resolute, bosses were radioed, managers were called, and quite a stir was created before I was finally allowed to disembark via another conveyance in order to schlep my amp to the bandstand. The happy couple and their lucky guests were thankfully able to dance into the night.